Good morning, Outlook family. Sure is good to see everyone this morning. Before we jump into our message today, I get to share some good and fun news. As promised, an update as last Sunday was Commitment Sunday of the Legacy Campaign. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at the legacy of our church that we've inherited as the current generation of outlookers that have been that are a part of this congregation and how forward-looking and mission-minded and and flexible and generous our church has always been and uh, we've been looking at that last Sunday we made commitments toward this giving initiative and I just want to share how we're doing so far we are off to a really great and strong start so far 119 commitments have been made totaling $553,340. So many, many thanks. Yeah, many, many thanks for you being such an enthusiastically generous congregation. It is a joy to be your pastor for so many reasons. This is far from the most important one, but it's good to know that we're all in this thing together. Amen? It really, really is. Let's pray together and get ready to dive into God's word. Father, we thank you that we're gathered here today. The, the chance that we've had to worship you uh, so far has been a rich blessing. It's tuned our hearts so that we can be open to hearing what it is you have to say to us today. And so, Lord, with those hearts open and, and well-tuned to you, we do now open your word. We ask God you'd speak to us. Lord, it's my prayer that we'll all walk out of here with the word, the, the truth, the thought, the reality, the need um, met that each of us brought in here, that each of us will walk out of here with exactly what we need. Lord, that's my prayer. And I pray you just bless this time that we have together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks a lot for praying with me. In these weeks leading to and including Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we are turning our thoughts toward Jesus, reflecting deeply on the wonder of who he was and is, and the beauty of how he lived, and the wisdom of what he taught, and the greatness of all he gave. And so we're going to do something a little different in this series between now and the end of the month and Easter Sunday. And I hope that what we're going to do here is a blessing to you. We're going to move through passages of Scripture from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the books of the Bible that tell us the story of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we're going to do that with minimal addition from me. A few thoughts and observations here and there, but mostly letting these scenes land on us. And today we're going to consider his life, his way of life, and his call. And I've selected seven vignettes for us to, to, to move through. Uh, and if you're, I know some of you, you're going to want to know the references for these. We're going to email you all the references of the passages that I'm going to share with us today. And I would encourage you, even in your devotional time this week, to read through these passages again and really soak in them. We'll do that every week between now and, and up into and including Easter Sunday. And it could be a really great opportunity, if you'd like, uh, to soak in these scriptures, the story of Jesus, as we prepare our hearts for Easter Sometimes simply hearing uh, and seeing with our mind's eye these stories is an opportunity that should not be missed. It's one thing to learn and it's to be taught. And sometimes it's good to just let Scripture do its own work in us. And so as we move through these passages of Holy Scripture, feel free to use some divine imagination and place yourself in the scene 
Picture the people and hear the conversations as if you're standing right there. And especially, pay close attention to everything Jesus says and does. When God walks the earth as a human being, what is he like? That's a great question to ask. What does he do? And what does he not do? What does he say? What does he not say? Now, I'm entering into this series, kind of a little bit of an experiment, nothing, like I've, nothing quite like anything I've ever done before with you all. And I'm doing it for one simple reason. I love Jesus. I find him and everything about him compelling and magnetic. And I want to introduce or reintroduce him to you and you to him. So I'd encourage you as we move through these passages, pay attention to Jesus in them and see them as an invitation to get to know him better. Relax, close your eyes if you need to, use your imagination and let the scenes come to you. Why is this important? Because this same Jesus that we'll encounter in these passages is alive today and interacting with you and with me and with anyone who will turn toward him. I believe that to be true. He is the same person eternally as well as intimately. He's present with us just as we read about him being present in these stories. Amen. So let's begin and meet Jesus as a boy in the temple. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among all their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, this is a real first century home alone situation, right? Kevin, right? In this case, Jesus. And I'm old enough to remember being a kid lost in the mall. Do you ever get separated from your parents, right, at the mall? How scary that is. And how scary it can be if you're the parent who's lost the kid in the mall. They've lost their kid in the city, the whole city. They don't know where he is, and he's been gone for a while. And they head back. And it says, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him, it says, was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? An equally, uh, an equally valid translation of those original words. I had to be about my father's business. And right there it is in 12-year-old Jesus' words. The insight that he would end up bringing to so many people. There is a greater agenda at work here. There's a higher plane of activity in which we can participate if we are aware. My father is at work. He has business to take care of. And I'm with him in that. It says they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them 
and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Let's fast forward a bit to Jesus' baptism. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, John's hesitancy makes sense. He has insight into Jesus' true identity. He's the Son of God. He's the King of the universe. He's he's the Savior of the world. He's the Lamb of God, right? He's saying, I'm the one that should be baptized by you. But Jesus' answer is, no, no, no. It should be done. And it should be done this way. Because, John, what's happening here along the banks of the Jordan is right and it's good. People are coming, repenting. They're drawing near to God. This is how all good things start. And in Jesus choosing to be baptized, he was showing us how to begin, how good things begin. He was setting an example. So John consented, it says, and agreed to baptize him. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove, we read. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And then Luke adds this. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. It's been 18 years since that scene in the temple. 30 years since that arrival we celebrate each Christmas, right? Years with his family. Years of preparation. Years of obscurity. But all that was about to change. Let's now hear Jesus call his first disciples. One day, as Jesus was standing by the Lake of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, let, uh, pull into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets, he said. Was there a little side eye from Peter here? Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? I'm the fisherman here, right? Was there a gleam in Jesus' eye? Just you wait, right? When they had done so, the Bible says, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They filled both boats so so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, we read, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. How often and how easily can we push Jesus away? 
put distance between us and him because we feel we're a mess. Maybe even a sinful man or woman, as Peter puts it here. Have nothing to do with me, we say to him. I'm sure you have more qualified and more sanctified people than me to deal with. But Jesus will have none of this. He says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Jesus sees what's really going on in Simon. Fear. He's afraid. You're afraid, Simon. Don't be, Jesus says. And I can't help but wonder if this is exactly the word that some of us do need to walk out of here hearing this morning. Don't be afraid. Something's going on in your life, in your heart, in your soul, your anxiety levels up to here. Fear is taking control, and you have wondered if God has forgotten all about you. You don't know if he moved or you did, but there's a lot of distance, and you don't know what to do about it. And somewhere, those words of Peter or Simon kind of ring true. Get away from me, Lord. I don't know what I'm doing, and you want nothing to do with me, let me assure you. Jesus doesn't care about any of that. Don't be afraid, he says. Maybe that's what you need to hear. Maybe that's what I need to hear. Don't be afraid. Jesus is saying to Simon, I see you, and I have so much more for you. So it says, they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Let's now go to a scene and see what Peter, something else that Peter says and does that's pretty noteworthy. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Word was getting around. People had opinions about this Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets long ago has come back to life. He stops. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? This is exactly one of those moments where in our divine imagination, we could go ahead and let Jesus ask us that question too. Who do we say that he is? Maybe not who do we know, what, what do we know is the right answer to that question, but who do we say he is in our living, in our deciding, in our thinking, in our behaving? Who do you say, he says, that I am? Any number of people? can say any and claim any number of things. But what do you say, Jesus asks? Where do you stake your claim on this question? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In saying this, Simon is saying, you're the one, the one we need, the one we've been waiting for, the one predicted and anticipated, the one to set things right, the one to save our eternal lives. That's who you are, he says. Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, he goes on to say, that you are Peter. The Greek word for Peter means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of Hades, that is the realm of the dead, will not overcome it. 
This word of witness from Peter was so solid and robust that Jesus says, all the forces of darkness don't stand a chance against it. Our same word of witness about Jesus is just as powerful. Who do we say that he is? And we must honestly and winsomely share that exact word, regardless of what others say about it. What do others say? Who cares in the end? What do we say? What have we come to discover is true, the true answer of who Jesus is? When we say that, when we share that word, we find we're cooperating with Jesus as he builds his church. In fact, what is the church, if not a group of people who have just simply come to discover who Jesus really is? Who do we say that he is? He's the Messiah, the Savior of us all, the King of the universe and the Lord of our lives. Passage concludes, interestingly, then he ordered his disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, this was a temporary measure. Let's be clear. He says, keep this on the DL for now, because this is going to get me killed. But for right now, I've got work to do. Let's listen in on another conversation. Jesus and a rich young man. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees. Again, someone on his knees before the Lord, recognizing who Jesus really is and that this is the right response when you're before the Son of God, ran up to him on his knees. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I want to live God's life. I want to understand what that reality looks like in me. How do I do that? Jesus says, why do you call me good? He answered, no one's good except God alone. In other words, let's be clear. By calling me good, you're calling me God. Now, I'm not correcting you. In fact, you're right. But do you understand what you're saying? He goes on to say, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. Teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy, the young man said. What do I still lack? He sensed something was missing. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now this, I believe, is a great template for our prayers, you and me. We come before the Lord on our knees, maybe literally, certainly figuratively, certainly in a posture of humility and learning and repentance and declaring him above us as the Lord of all. This is a template that we come to him and say, what do I still lack, Lord? What's missing in me? Where can I grow? Where do, where, where do I need to mature? What is my growing edge? Some of us have forgotten we're even supposed to have a growing edge, right? The idea that there's, there's areas in our lives that we, we don't know some things, we need to learn them. Or there's ways that maybe we've regressed when we actually need to progress, right? We need to, to learn and grow and become more Christ-like. And God, what's, uh, I want your eternal life and I want it all. I want all of it to be true in me. And I recognize that it's all a gift, but I've not opened every gift. I've not fully realized all the goodness of this life that you've given me. What do I still lack, Lord? What do you see when you look inside me? I think of Psalm 139, one of my favorite passages, a great prayer from the Old Testament. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
That is very much, in my opinion, in alignment with what this young man is saying to Jesus. What do I still lack? And here's the beautiful thing. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looks at us, not with judgment or disappointment. And maybe this will be the word you need to walk out of here with today. That Jesus is not looking down his nose at you. Wish they'd finally get it together. But instead, he looks at us, lack and all, and loves us. He looks at us not with judgment or disappointment, but with love. He goes on to say, if you want to be perfect, that is whole and complete, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. It says he went, a great, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, man, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said it again, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't saying that somehow it's supposed to be this way. He's observing that it just is this way. That when we have wealth, we end up having so much to hang on to, so much to distract us, that it's hard, he says, for people to let go of those things and really surrender their lives, themselves, their whole life, their whole, the whole selves to God. It says the disciples were even more amazed. They said to each other, who then can be saved? They thought riches was a sign of God's blessing. Jesus is telling us that these riches actually can get in the way. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. God makes those things possible. We walk around, conscious or unconscious, with a list of all the things that we think are probably impossible, not going to happen. God knows of no such list. He's expert at making those things possible. So many things in us and outside us get in our way of coming to God. God makes a way. Who then can be saved, the disciples asked. You can, and I can. We can count on it. Because God makes it possible. Then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children, look around, right, a family, and fields, along with persecutions, he warns, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last by this world's standards, and the last first. In other words, he's saying to Simon Peter, who said, we've left everything to follow you. He says, is that everything that you left by the seaside, Simon Peter? Your boats and that amazing catch of fish, one unlike any you'd ever seen, as well as your former life and old ways of thinking, that everything that you've left was next to nothing. Because all of it pales in comparison to the purpose and the people and the love and the life that's coming your way through me, Jesus says. Jesus is a multiplier and an amplifier of good things. And nothing we quote unquote give up 
isn't in the end upgraded and expanded. He's good at that. Let's look at another scene. People were bringing little children and babies to Jesus, the Bible says, for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. They wondered, is this really what it's about? This is not how we had, this was not on today's agenda. And the teacher has better things to do. They rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, we read, he was indignant and called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Not unlike his conversation with the rich young man, he's redefining what it means to have faith and to enter the kingdom of God. He took the children in his arms. Think of that moment. He took the children in his arms, let place his hands on them and bless them. Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, the very people you're excluding or trying to exclude, they actually have a front row seat and a backstage pass. And you think they aren't qualified to learn. They shouldn't be here. Actually, they're here to teach. For it is childlike faith that enjoys the Father's kingdom most. And that's a reminder for us all. One final scene. Jesus is back at the temple. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Jesus is love. He's the very embodiment of love. He's the definition of love. And in love, there are things he knows that should not be allowed. He will not allow them. Things that need to stop. So he puts them to a stop. People were missing a point that he knew they could not afford to miss. Don't lose God amidst the things of God. Don't let the details steal your wonder. And don't let worship become about what I can get, but instead about how much I can give. It says he taught them and he said, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's Isaiah 56. But you've made it a den of robbers. That's Jeremiah 7. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, it says, and they began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They could not find a way to do it because all the people, it says, hung on his words. Jesus is still about his father's business. He's back at the temple and he still sees it as his father's house. And I wonder, were any of those teachers of the law, were they around when Jesus was 12, did they hear stories of the child prodigy? Did they, did they even, did they put two and two together that he's the same man, the same person, the same guy, the same one who's blessed with such wisdom, such insight, such connection to the heavenly father? 
He's back at the temple, still about his father's business. This was not the first time Jesus had done this. Near the beginning of his ministry, he did the same. And he declared, this is in John 2, stop turning my father's house into a market, he said. This same father's house he could not bear to leave when he was 12 and now could not bear to see misused. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. What an awesome and audacious thing to say. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But we read the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And we do too. We believe the scriptures and the words that Jesus spoke. He did let his body be destroyed, as he puts it, but not for long. And this takes us to the table. If you grabbed a bread and cup on your way in, I'd invite you to take it into your hands now. Destroy this temple. Jesus is our temple. Jesus replaces that temple that he motioned to, that he was standing in, that he was teaching in. He becomes our temple. He says, you'll try to destroy it. I will raise it up in three days time. He knows where all this is leading. He knows what he's about to do. This Jesus that we've been hearing, that we've been watching, that we've been following along with these last few minutes, that we've been envisioning ourselves with, this Jesus on the night before his cross took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke that bread. And he said, just as this bread is broken, so my body will be given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And we read that in like manner, after supper, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he poured. And he said, just as this is being poured, so my blood will be poured out. And that blood will be a sacrifice that will seal a new promise from God. A promise based on grace and love that comes to you through faith and repentance. So every time you take this cup, you are celebrating that great love. Let's take and drink together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your, your words, your acts, your, your, your very person was recorded for us, that we could read these stories, these very true, um, beautiful accounts of your life and ministry. Let them land on us again today. Holy Spirit, use these passages, both as we've heard them and as we may end up reading them this week, to Make it personal for each of us. If we need to hear your words, don't be afraid. Then, Lord, help us to not be afraid. If we need to hear your words, who do you say that I am? Then, Lord, help us to find that answer for ourselves, who we say you are. For right now, on this Sunday morning, gathered together with this chance to worship you, we say you are great. We say you are the Son of God. We say you are worthy of our whole life's devotion. And we thank you 
for being who you are, our Lord, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.